0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. My name is Nicole Trujillo-Pagan, and I'm a sociologist and associate professor and your host here with Howard Gillette to talk about the paradox of urban revitalization, progress and poverty in America's post-industrial era. Howard Gillette is Professor Emeritus of History at Rutgers University Camden and co-editor of the Online Encyclopedia of Greater Philadelphia. Among other works, he's also written Camden After the Fall, Decline and Renewal in a Post-Industrial City, Between Justice and Beauty, Race, Planning, and the Failure of Urban Policy in Washington, D.C., Civitas by Design, Better Building Communities, from the Garden City to the New Urbanism, and Class Divided, Yale 64, and the Conflicted Legacy of the 60s. Welcome, uh, Dr. Gillette.
0: Well, thank you for having me join you today.
1: Well, I'm really excited to talk about your book that looks at nine cities that are known for their loss of industry and decline after the 1960s. So it's interesting that your title is The Paradox of Urban Revitalization. Why revitalization? Well,
0: this is a subject that's been in my mind for quite a long time. What happened to those cities that I started looking at in the early part of my career that were in steep decline, because starting in the first part of the 21st century, we began to have a different narrative, a narrative of revitalization, even in these cities that had uh, experienced great loss of human and monetary capital. So we hear from esteemed journalists, uh, such things as the next Brooklyn, uh, referring even to such places as uh, Oakland or or particularly even Detroit or Newark, and then uh, even the most respected people in the in the disciplines were saying the exciting things are happening in cities like Detroit. We ought to see what's happening. And behind that, there are some pretty good figures that uh, investment was coming back to cities, that property values were coming up, and that um, the ability to meet uh, the needs of the city were, were getting much better, uh, despite the fact that um, the federal government hadn't changed its position. It was all a matter of people coming back to the cities, bringing more demand for the services and, and uh, changing over uh, the whole narrative of the city. So the paradox came when we found out that this was not all good news, that with uh, progress came uh, even greater poverty. And that's what I was really looking at.
1: Yeah, I want to get back to some of the things that you're talking about here with progress and poverty, but it, I think it would help uh, me and the listeners to think a little bit more about the quote that you used to open your book. It's a quote from the 19th century uh, that I like to read aloud, and I was surprised that to learn that it was penned by an economist. Uh, the quote is, everywhere it is evident that the tendency to inequality cannot go much further without carrying our civilization into that downward path, which is so easy to enter and so hard to abandon. Though knowledge yet increases and invention marches on and cities still expand, civilization has begun to wane when, in proportion to population, we must build more and more prisons, more and more almshouses more and more insane asylums. Now that was penned by Henry George in his book, Progress and Poverty, published in 1879. Why do you start there? And what does this tell us about your book?
0: Well, it is pretty extraordinary to think that someone writing so long ago could sound so pertinent to the current period. But uh, George was an extraordinary critic of 19th century laissez-faire capitalism. And uh, the kind of uh, free market capitalism that he uh, criticized and the height of the the Gilded Age is exactly the same kind of uh, economic system that many critics coming into the 21st century uh, had in their sights. We we hear it as usually described as neoliberalism, but neoliberalism goes back to laissez-faire capitalism. And uh, so we are... uh, Uh, in a period where we were recognizing many of the same issues that George uh, brought to the fore as a, not just an economist, but as an activist who ran for office himself, who had a following of working class people across the country and who uh, really, uh, before the progressive era took hold, saw many of the issues that progressives in the first part of the 20th century began to address finally by dealing with housing uh, markets and uh, other kinds of inequalities that had uh, beleaguered big cities in the, in the Gilded Age.
1: I think it's important. You're talking about laissez-faire capitalism, well, um, his his critique of it anyway, and neoliberalism, but I want to get to the heart of the matter. You open your book talking about Freddie Gray. You talk about, you know, the late 1960s civic uprising. You follow uh, referring to George Floyd. I mean, uh, we know that markets are not colorblind. So when we're talking about neoliberalism, what is it that you're trying to help us understand about race?
0: Well, th- this has certainly been a, uh, a, a theme that's emerged in recent years of uh, uh, capitalism's racial bias. Uh, we can see it really in uh, all sorts of ways in which the housing market has operated, even from the uh, progressive period of the 1930s when when uh, housing was made a public priority and public housing was brought forth for the first time at the same time realtors were given a free hand uh, basically to use subsidies to bring housing to people across the country but with a strong bias against uh, mixed in mixed uh, racial neighborhoods for example this is where we got the term redlining uh, areas that were cordoned off from Uh, being targets for loans. And so you have an unequal use of the capital system going, you know, almost 80, 90 years, even coming from a progressive administration. So it wasn't entirely new that we saw that when uh, capital flows came back to cities, that they were not coming back neutrally, that there was a a structure in place which directed those uh, revenues to... um, areas of demand, but also areas which had been more or less uh, cordoned off as being acceptable to um, upper income and largely white people. So you get a bias in the 21st century, even as there's a possibility of overturning um, a really deep decline, what was normally been called the first urban crisis uh, because of the unevenness of the system and the way in which it's racially
1: charged. Yeah, I want to talk about how those pathways are are happening. But first, I want to think a little bit more about this crisis. You talk about, you know, the prominent urbanist Richard Florida several times in your book. And you say his most recent, uh, more recent message of a new urban crisis has been unheeded. What is this new urban crisis? And why do you think it's been, his message has been ignored?
0: Well, it's uh, a or because we have so many different things going on at one time, really. But the, the, the heart of Florida's critique was that um, with uh, the revitalization of these cities, and he was looking at basically the, the global cities like New York and others. So the way he has a broader range than that, uh, the New York epitomizes the example of where you have uh, growing wealth, but you also have growing poverty and uh, the disparities, the inequalities between people living in in the same jurisdictions becomes even more stark. So what he called a second urban crisis was the fact that with the reversal of the economic markets that had fled from cities, there was a further exacerbation of uh, entrenched poverty and the intrusion on um, lower and middle-income neighborhoods of uh, people who, were re- rising demands uh, for housing, raising the prices, and bringing gentrification to neighborhoods that had never experienced them in a 50-year period of decline.
1: You point out that Florida says that this new urban crisis is much more than a—it's much more than a crisis of cities. Look, help us distinguish the urban here and the. In the analysis of these neoliberal markets,
0: well, that's that's really uh, Florida's argument. Um, I think that we have seen for most of American's modern history that cities are engines of our economic system, Mm -hmm. and when those engines become weakened in some way, whole regions begin to uh, suffer. Uh, It's certainly true in the greater Philadelphia region, for example. You've got uh, parts of Philadelphia and the inner city, and you've got Camden at the heart of that region being dragged down, in essence, by the fact that s- significant portions of the region are underfunded, that they uh, uh, they demand very high levels of service, uh, and that they don't generate the same level of wealth and um, well-being that is expected of the region as a whole. So if you expect and, and believe that regions are the dynamos of our system then when cities are rotten at the core they drag the whole thing down and it does become much more than a city issue mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. got it that's really helpful but there's this um, the sort of gnawing question you have this line for example in your introduction where you say uh, that the argument of your book is that the apparent revitalization of these places where inequities were most fraud is going to be the subject of your analysis. I'm interested that we keep talking in terms of inequalities um, that, for example, white and African-American residents have of the, you know, the, um, the revitalization. Their they, inequitable um, experience of this revitalization may be different than unequal Or are those two terms the same? In other words, is there something social or political, something built in that's causing these inequalities?
0: Well, yes, I think to to begin with, um, there's a very uh, strong bias that has been in place largely since the first urban crisis uh, against subsidizing uh, areas or at least uh, reallocating funds from richer to poorer uh, areas of cities and that bias uh, has been confirmed in many ways in which the the only kind of subsidies that are really looked for are the subsidies that drink bring business into the city so the 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 crux of the issue then for the contemporary period is, is those as those investments begin to flow back into cities can they be diverted in such a way that they become broadly experienced and shared, rather than being uh, directed, A, to the most wealthy areas of cities, cities, parts of cities that are already doing pretty well, or as a spillover effect, as in Washington, D.C., it's a good example of having that same process spread to neighborhoods that were once stable Black middle-class or lower middle-class neighborhoods, and see them taken up by People were raising demand for the housing and the services there and gentrifying the neighborhoods at the expense of people who've been living there uh, during the period of, of decline. So, yes, the the real crux here is with recognizing revitalization. Is it purely going to subsidize business or can it be widely shared through a variety of different uh, uh, forms that uh, have been pioneered over the last 20, 25 years in different cities across the country, things like community um, um, benefits agreements, things mm-hmm. like inclusionary housing requirements, so that if you have a new um, property being put in, you've got 50 units, 30 of those units, uh, or at least 10 or 15 of those units would be uh, set aside for below-market housing costs, and they'd be subsidized basically within the costs of the larger project.
1: It seems to me there's something very fundamental that that you're arguing here about these last, as you say, 20, 25 years. You talk about a period between the late 1960s through the mid to late 1970s, which to me seems rather brief, that seems to be about social policy then there's the one that follows. And so I'm wondering how wide this window is of what you call the growth-first approach.
0: Well, I think it's been in place ever since the since the late 1960s. I think it was very much a reaction against two things. One was the turmoil that came with the uh, rebellions that, or riots, whichever you want to call them, uh, that took place in the late 1960s and early 70s in our cities. And the second thing was the rise of black activists, in particular, um, to cities across the country that had these experiences. And I'll talk about two or three of those people in, in uh, my book. Uh, one, of course, is Coleman Young in, in uh, Detroit, and the other was uh, uh, Marion Barry in DC. These are people who are civil rights activists. They were right in the front of the redistributive justice movement, and they get into office and they don't have enough money to pay for all the services they want. And they begin to um, uh, court and support uh, big, big uh, item investments like the Renaissance center in Detroit or any number of one of other projects downtown in Washington, DC. And those are the things that only marginally uh, help in any way. uh, The people who are living in the neighborhoods who are suffering with underfunding and under-serviced kinds of communities. So yes, um, this this is connected over time. Personally, I wanted to do something as an academic, which isn't done very often, which is to connect the very good historical work on that earlier first period of crisis with what's happening right now, because uh, there's wonderful material now in the urban studies field about the contemporary city situation, but it's not connected up closely with the past. And we ought to see the trajectory of how um, we carry over from the past uh, into the future, the kinds of thinking and policy orientations that come from an earlier era.
1: And that's exactly what I want to connect to. When you talk about these late 1960s in Detroit, it was called the rebellion, right? One thing that Coleman Young says is a consequence of all of that violence, you know, all of the um property damage was that you see the loss of a lot of quote unquote dollars, right? Investment dollars, tax dollars, all kinds of money leaves the city. And I think it's very marked, it's a very marked difference what happens in the summer of 2020, where, you know, the protests were all or from what mostly overwhelmingly peaceful. And so I wonder what that meant for the way cities reacted um, you know, after those those uh Black Lives Matters protests in the in 2020.
0: Well of course that experience differed in different places, but um I think that the 1960s rebellions were were fomenting for quite a long time and there was Certainly, a uh, with Martin Luther King's assassination, in particular, where you had riots across the country, you had a fuse that was lit that just exploded. I think with Black Lives Matters, you had a, a building narrative um, that, in a different period of activism, brought together people who had been involved in a number of different kinds of social uh, welfare and, and the progressive institutions in organized ways that was less spontaneous than the reaction to King's mm. assassination or to the other events that kicked off riots in Newark and Detroit in 67 or in New Haven, where I was in 1967. Those were pretty much spontaneous, although they had built out of very specific um, kinds of complaints. And and in and, 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 uh New Haven, for example, there was a road being run through a, a local neighborhood. That's a story that took place in most of our major urban cities where there are Black communities in Detroit as well as in Newark and, and in Pittsburgh. And they were the roads to move people in and out of cities from the suburbs at the expense of existing Black communities. That created a, a very strong and powerful uh, kindling, you might say, that was ignited by these particular events of a shooting or something else that happened that uh, ignited the earlier riots. I think they're parallels, but I think the context is different.
1: Okay. and it does it's interesting that that it's there's no kindling in that period uh, from uh, um, the Trayvon Martin. Uh, decision and the George Floyd murder because you know it's, it's hard to say what what really is spontaneous when this is always playing out on the TV even in the beginning of your book talking about we must build more and more prisons you know that George Henry George quote the the issue of criminality in these cities the criminalization and you know the surveillance I wonder how much this is complementing the kinds of um, spending on business. You know the the efforts to revitalize the downtown. How much are those two things related?
0: Oh, well, I think they are related. I think a number of people have pointed out that uh, that the protection of property um, has been a very um, high priority in in most cities over time. And in, in some instances, you don't have an exam. You don't have the uh, funding to to do this in a in a major way. But as you see, uh, resources spreading out in cities like Washington or, or Camden even is a very good example. Camden has a, a much larger police force for its population than any other city in the country. And that's only beca- because uh, the, the, the Republican governor uh, worked out a, a, a deal with a Democratic power bro- broker in the area to bring the police in to provide security before uh, heavy subsidization of businesses come into the city and, and those people can feel safe, quote unquote, uh, because the police have been expanded and the whole force has been reorganized. Uh, I I think we could see it in small and large ways um, that policing is part of capital uh, protection plans and uh, people don't like to invest in volatile communities. At least private business doesn't. And even when you have government inducing business investments. Uh, there, there has to be some s- security measures involved. And that shows up in lots of different ways where many of these companies uh, cordon themselves off and, and campuses apart from the city. And that's, again, an example in, in uh, Camden, where you have a, uh, a new company, Holtec, uh, completely closed off from the rest of the city. And uh, Subaru moving into what once was a great department store area, now um, pretty much cordoned off Uh, off of a highway um, with no neighborhood nearby, and uh, the campus is totally separate from the rest of the city, so there's no overflow for bringing 500 or so business people from one part of the the state to uh, Camden because they're not going out and eating, they're not shopping, they're not doing anything in the city except working in their own complex.
1: I'm going to ask you two questions about Detroit or or at least how I see this happening. You're talking about spending to create a sense of safety and I find it um you know illustrative that in your case of Detroit you talk about the um this the uh, emergency manager Kevin or success in restoring the use of public lights. Now this issue of public lights it seems has been echoed endlessly. Mayor Duggan says this is one of the wonderful things that you know I did, <laughs> and and you know uh, Jamie Diamond when he talks about how the city's changing, he talks about the public lights. You cite Bomi's book uh, uh, on the. Um, what is it, the resuscitation of Detroit? And again, the the emphasis on the lights. And I wonder, on the one hand, you're talking about these different experiences of the city. The city's being re- revitalized for some people. And so I wonder, when we talk about these public lights, is this really something that um, it, it creates real safety or does it create the illusion of safety? Is it just lights or is there more to what, what, is, what we're seeing with the lights on?
0: I think it's some of both. Uh, you know, I, I think mm-hmm. lights do matter. Um, where you have um, areas that have experienced levels of violence in one form or another, and this happens in big city neighborhoods across the country, uh, dark corners are not welcome, not by... Um, businesses and certainly not by residents. So lights can be a pretty unifying kind of thing and they can be very symbolic. They don't put money into people's pockets, however. They don't uh, Mm -hmm. overturn injustices, say in the foreclosure process where people in Detroit in particular during the recession of 2008 and 2009 um, lost homes unnecessarily because the government redirected money that was coming to them to help with foreclosures to tear downs, tear are uh, are for somebody else. They're uh, clearing the land for better use. They're uh, efforts to try to uh, induce a different kind of uh, environment and, in in turn, uh, attract new buyers and and new builders. And that doesn't that doesn't stabilize neighborhoods. That's quite the opposite. So yes, I think. Uh, it's easy enough to talk about lights, and I, I, I don't have any problems with people bringing lights to, to either neighborhoods or downtowns. Uh, I think beyond that, what you hear associated with such things uh, are the terms that are used repeatedly in these cities that I looked at. A good place to work, to play, and to live. Now, that is a nice um, formula for trying to attract the back to the city crowd, whether you're talking about millennials or you're talking about empty empty nesters coming back from the suburbs to the city. Um, Either way, it is coded. It isn't saying you already have a decent place to live. You have a neighborhood, you have this, you have that. It may not be perfect, but you don't have to be sold a bill of goods that you, you need a place that you can do all those three things because that's really a, an effort to try to attract people to downtowns, uh, and it's worked to a degree, uh, certainly up until the the early nineteen uh, the twenty twenties when when COVID began to uh, reverse that
1: process. Um, I don't go ahead. I don't know if this is generalizable as a formula, but it does seem that you get uh, in your analysis of Detroit to this. Um, When you talk about, you know, the problems of spending on business versus spending on neighborhood, that it's about more than just attracting new populations, right, to post-industrial cities. There's about the residents that live um, in very, you know, large areas that don't have the kinds of population density that the city wants to spend on. And you talk about this important paradigm shift, right, where New York during its urban crisis thought about um, partial recovery or targeted what I think what they call place-based investing, um, focusing on specific neighborhoods that it wants to invest money in and allowing others to revert to, um, for example, green space. How reflective is that of what other cities are doing. You you have nine cities in your your analysis. Are other cities pursuing that same kind of targeted neighborhood renewal?
0: I think there has been some limited amount of uh, effort to do just that. Uh, There was an effort in uh, the early part of the century, I believe in Milwaukee, to uh, favor certain neighborhoods over other neighborhoods, basically to rank them as to which ones were most deserving with the idea that you'd let the other neighborhoods fend for themselves, potentially uh, um, replace them as they got to such a bad state where they'd have to be uh, cleared and the like. Uh, Detroit is really, I think, the most... uh, pertinent example, uh, it's not the only one I think I mentioned, a f- have a footnote from Youngstown where there was a very clear effort to, to not do that, uh, not to leave uh, uh, people behind. And, and certainly in the example of New York in the 70s, they, they never really instituted such a program. But Dave Bing, as, a, as the mayor of Detroit, basically said, you know, we can't afford to invest in infrastructure in these uh, neighborhoods that are f- emptying emptying out they're hollow we can't do it we're going to put our money where the, the, the people are and then people can make their own way there and dugan when he ran for mayor uh, ran on every neighborhood counts basically he said i'm going to put money in every neighborhood and uh, i'm going to treat them all the same well the the big uh, the, the 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 big plan for um Detroit's future, which uh, um, Detroit Future City uh, was was taking a really long look at this and saying, "Okay, we're really going to uh, take the places that have been abandoned and make them worthwhile, but not necessarily as places to live. Primarily, they might be mayor houses. They might be um, nature's conservatories and areas like that. So there was a kind of implicit favoritism of certain neighborhoods over others. And, a, and a, you might say, I think you might have even used the term a little greenwashing by saying, we're gonna help the environment at the expense, basically of building infrastructure that might sustain a, a living community. So I think Detroit is really a, a crucial uh, example of a kind of tense balance where the planning is for 50 years the immediacy of people living in neighborhoods and conditions that are not terribly tenable is much more pressing on the people who are in government and not in the planning office. And those two things uh, potentially meet in something like Detroit Future City's own office, where they're talking about equity across the city. They're evaluating finally, and it took them a while to get there. They're evaluating whether or not they're doing well across the city and and, and looking for ways to bring every part of the city back to a standard of living that, that would be acceptable to um, anyone living there. I think that's good. I think, in fact, if there was an effort to do what Bing was suggesting, it's been pretty much rejected. But I think that the inclination generally in cities is to drift in the way of supporting the stronger at the expense of the weaker. And that's where community organizing becomes so important to try to equalize the system. And I think even in Philadelphia, they're using a term leveling up. Uh, That's a terrible term in my my opinion, but the idea of equity is not a bad term. And we all realize that there isn't equal uh, access or to uh, resources across cities anywhere. And if we can get closer to that through the planning offices and through um, investment strategies and shared wealth as it comes into the city, we will be doing better in the long run.
1: Well, I, I think that's an important, uh, I guess, realization that you know it's not equal anywhere, but you have three categories. You categorize your nine cities in, in three categories. Tell us more about those categories and, and how you uh, chunked different cities in each one.
0: <laughs> well, I'll tell you that I, I, I couldn't even remember Uh, without looking at the book, exactly what I call those (laughs) categories. This is a, this is a device to help a reader and certainly to help an editor uh, find a justification for the ordering of your cities. So there is a certain hierarchy here, the cities that have done least well in terms of addressing the inequalities of their cities as this wealth has begun to come back in, and those who do best at the end. So the extremes, can be found in my own state of New Jersey. Uh, Camden in in the first group, and it's not necessarily the third worst to come its group with Detroit and also with with Baltimore. It's not necessarily the third worst. I think it could be maybe the worst. Uh, On the other end, there are three cities that are doing better and Newark comes last and presumably best. It's not necessarily a lot better than Pittsburgh, but I think it's social justice consciousness and ability to put that into effect is better. So it, it, gets, a, it gets a higher ranking, you might say. But I think that the, the, the crucial thing here is that all these cities are faced with a, a, a choice as to how they handle opportunity and whether those opportunities can be structured in such a way that they benefit people uh, who need it as much as those people they'd like to have come in and benefit the city in return. That is attracting new people into the city is not any more important than servicing and helping the people who are still there and who have needs and services in terms of services and welfare.
1: So you say um, uh, there's a part of your city where you talk about how you you quote Isinger, where you say developers always have big products, right? And that would be true for all these cities. But what's interesting is um, you know, uh, residents contest the money that goes to these uh, plans, the developers' plans, because they take money away from, from the neighborhoods. But then you say fewer is, comp. Or you quote and uh, saying, fewer is comprehensive, grandiose, unregulated, and unchallenged as those in Detroit. In your cases of Baltimore, Detroit, and Camden, what's happening with this prevailing growth orthodoxy? Are the cities more focused on the business, or is it that people are less active and challenging the city's emphasis on um, all kinds of business incentives that they're, that they're offering.
0: Um, well, Baltimore's a, Baltimore's a good example. Uh, you know, uh, Kevin Plank is uh, Under Armour, head of Under Armour, uh, wanted to develop uh, Port Covington. It's a whole new section of the city. And he got the largest subsidy ever offered through uh, t- incremental tax uh, financing uh, in the city of, of, of Baltimore. So i can 't remember how large somewhere in the order of three to four 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 hundred million dollars and it was a huge product uh the city accepted it without any cost analysis in advance there was no you know uh, evaluation of you know, diverting those dollars future income on that on that investment uh which would all uh be out of the coffers of the city uh what what effect it would have at the same time um, they were able to negotiate with, uh, with Plank and Under Armour and his development company to get a quite a substantial community benefits agreement. First, it was localized to the area around Port Covington, but then it was extended more broadly and it got to be quite a significant figure. That suggests that community organizing has a very important role. In contrast, in, in, in Camden, uh, there was uh, $1.6 billion in state money uh, in, invested in bringing companies into the city. And those cities had very loose requirements for job uh, development as they came into the city. And it was the position of the main community organizing group in the city, churches organized for for, for Camden, uh, to get a community benefit out of this, the formal one that would be written in stone that uh, for every uh, dollar invested, you would get such and such return on it. And the mayor said, well, look, we can deal with this ourselves. We're, we're in charge. You don't need this. They never got a community benefits agreement. They, um, the group itself pretty much folded shortly after this. And just this last week, we got the first figures on how many jobs were created by these new investments and they were very low. Companies that got as much as $260 million were hiring eight or 10 people and workforces of five or 600 people. It's a very, very um, imbalanced system. And it partly is that way because there was no strength in response to this larger opportunity to to prevail and bring back into the community the uh, benefits that could have come from such a big investment.
1: Now, is there any, you know, national effort? Are there there actors who are working to track returns on these kinds of uh, cities' investments in in attracting business?
0: I don't believe there is. I, I, I think one of the, this actually goes back to your, one of your first questions. There is so much going on in terms of social policy being debated at the national level that it's very hard to see at the level we're talking about, um, which is very much close to the to the ground, uh, a lot of federal, Um, involvement and policy dialogue, what we're seeing is a little bit of a sort of sidestep in some of the federal money that came from the infrastructure bill, for instance, going to rebuild areas that were destroyed by those highways to destroy black neighborhoods. That's an extraordinary change. And we could all applaud that. It's amazing. But it wasn't debated. It wasn't something that was pushed for across the country. It becomes an opportunity that someone in the Biden White House saw as uh, being able to, to, to be pick, uh, to, to, to put it into this larger bill. But we're not talking about um, something like a war on poverty. We're not talking about uh, a bill of equity t- uh, for um, Uh, The various uh, federal investments that go into cities, for instance, uh, in in creating uh, affordable housing opportunities or the like. And as a consequence, mostly this is being done at the local and maybe at the state level. The state States don't have a lot of money. They've been somewhat antagonistic to their cities over time because they many times feel these cities are a drag on their economy. Uh, and they're largely populated by people that don't look like uh, the people who live in the rest of the state. So we, we don't have a, a great opportunity, and I made this point at the beginning, to help to the, the think that someone from the outside, state or federal, is going to come in and solve the problem. It really is how can we deal with our resources more effectively for the betterment of our own communities.
1: Well, I think uh, your book, uh, you know, the paradox of urban revitalization certainly gives us or identifies very clearly some things that are working. Uh, you talk about Oakland, Pittsburgh, and Newark as examples of progressive change. What were they doing right?
0: Well, part of it has to do with leadership um, and, and Newark particularly. It's interesting that you have um, a series of black mayors Going back of, of 40, 50 years now, uh, and coming out of a, a history of being run by largely white ethnics um, who dominated the city for much of its uh, period of industrial well-being, as that industry began to disappear and as the city began to change demographically, you finally get Ken Gibson elected, and then subsequently uh, several others of. Uh, of elected, including Cory Booker, but it's really Ras Baraka who uh, has been able to capture the, the moment. That he recognized that there was an opportunity to bring new investment here, and he spoke very directly to his constituents and said, look, we're not going to turn these newcomers away. We're not going to uh, prevent tourism or uh, home ownership from happening in our downtowns, but we're going to make it work for us we're gonna make sure that when this happens, that for instance, uh, new housing is gonna be uh, mixed income housing. When we have new uh, investments in businesses, people are going to hire locally as well as bring in people from outside the city. So he was able to capture very well the moment, the Black Lives moment, and and at the same time work with the establishment, including the substantial academic community there, which included Rutgers, as well as several other universities and a significant uh, business community to work together to achieve goals of equity. And he's been in the forefront of not only inclusionary housing, but uh, housing uh, trust funds and other kinds of investments, which will begin to roll back the poverty that has stuck around for so long in the central part of the city following the riots of 1967.
1: So it seems like there's a very important, significant role for political leadership here. And I think this is one of those examples of representation really does matter. But what are these cities, Milwaukee, New Haven, and Washington, what you called the balanced growth cases? How are they different from or how do they compare with the prevailing growth orthodoxy of Baltimore, Detroit, and Camden on the one hand, and the progressive change of Oakland, Pittsburgh, and Newark? How are Milwaukee, New Haven, and Washington different?
0: Well, you know, it, it, as I mentioned in the beginning, it's a mixed bag in every one of these cities. Um, I take New Haven as an example. One of the things that we've taken as a piece of orthodoxy is that eds and meds are good, Mm -hmm. that they are anchor institutions. They didn't leave the cities as other other businesses did. Uh, They hire locally as well as um, provide services that are perhaps cosmopolitan reef well beyond their, their uh, city boundaries. So here is a, a story which involves Yale New Haven Hospital, and Yale University itself, which is now the largest landlord in the city of, of New Haven, as well as the most uh, prominent institution of any kind in the city. And they do own the hospital, though they claim that it's a separate entity so they don't have to accept the union organizing that's taking place at the uh, university itself, but in, mm-hmm. they, the uh, hospital remains unorganized. And part of the story that I tell about New Haven is how uh, union workers uh, trying to organize Yale New Haven managed to create an alliance with local residents who were facing displacement as the, as the hospital expanded and beyond that, uh, allies in other neighborhoods who saw that union wages would be a big boost to anyone working in such an institution. So we have what is now widely called social unionism, where you have neighborhood groups and unions working together, uh, trying to get Yale New Haven to come up with a community benefits agreement that would really make a difference in the Hill neighborhood. Now, this was a particularly good example because Hill, the Hill neighborhood was at the center of the rioting in 1967, when I was finishing up my graduate degree at Yale. And nothing much had happened to improve that neighborhood. There were still significant problems in terms of poverty. It certainly was racially concentrated among Black and Latinos, but largely African-American. So they had real needs. And the interesting thing that happened in this case is that the. hospital beat back the unionizing effort, but the community benefits agreement went into effect. Yale also, in the same time as the the community organized, uh, worked with the city residents to create what they called a pipeline to employment. And they made it easier and more effective not only to get employment at Yale University itself, but also at some of the other um, businesses in the city. So Yale was uh, jumping in one way help. In another way, they were blocking change or trying to block change. And that's where I see them coming in the middle, that Yale continues to dominate the city. You could say that there's a tremendous benefit from having Eds and Meds there under the Yale umbrella. At the same time, when it came to Yale being taxed any more than it is already, beyond anything voluntary, voluntary, which they've done, they've increased their uh, contribution to the city at the time of Of recession, uh, they've they've locked it in the legislature. They have the power to do that. And um, as I said at the end, Yale remains the dominant institution in the city, but it's a a mixed record of success in terms of bringing the city along. I I don't want to denigrate what they have done, but they've also uh, protected their self-interest in a number of ways, which could be seen in other cities as well, where uh, Penn, for example, in Philadelphia, uh, has been very reluctant to put money into the community unless it really has to uh, and has no formula for doing so.
1: You know, I think your conclusion is uh, offers some really exciting examples of what you relate to um, a just city and inclusive growth. I wonder if you could talk to us about some of those examples of what cities are doing that's really innovative?
0: Well, I do think community benefits agreements are, are good. Uh, they can be perverted. I think they were at Atlantic Yards in, in Brooklyn. Uh, the developer, you know, more or less found his own partners for uh, communities <laughs> to benefit from uh, an agreement. But I think that the, certainly the partnerships there are very important. And it does depend uh, a lot on whether the community is organized already or not, uh, to be able to extract benefits, because there's very little in place to uh, force communities to do this. But in terms of that uh, um, optimistic side, we're seeing more happening nationally to um, put justice and particularly equity in the forefront. And I was really surprised. I don't think it's in my book, but I did do a paper following from the book, the uh, talk to this point, uh, the planning profession has become more sensitive to the ways in which planning and particularly zoning can be used to equalize uh, investments in terms of making sure that the only benefits are, uh, don't flow only to the the, the investors themselves and their, their immediate clients. And we saw this in Baltimore the, uh, before, um, Black Lives Matters at the City of Baltimore set up an equity committee. Um, Now we see nationally after uh, Black Lives, uh, after George Floyd in particular, we're seeing uh, a uh, group of big city planners joining into statement of equity and having a formula for trying to go forward. Uh, there's now a, a, an organization of state governments and, and county governments that has put equity at the forefront. And I also cite examples of organizations that are local that took a turn, uh, particularly after George Floyd, uh, towards greater equity. And I, I, I mentioned Detroit is a prime example of that. Um, other cities have followed the example of Oakland, for example, of having uh, an assessment annually uh, of equity indicators to see how well they're doing. On things. So if we don't look at this broadly, we don't look at equity in terms of just uh, housing or education or health, but combine all these things together, we have a better idea of how more comprehensively we can, we can uh, uh, aspire to a more comprehensive set of changes that come from these individual decisions on how to invest, where to invest, and what the repercussions might be.
1: I really appreciate that the, your analysis of these nine cases really gets us at how, you know, really local um, uh, equity looks. At the same time that we've talked a lot about cities and even the region, you you do start to get at the national level. And I'm, I I got to go back to that, uh, uh, that you point out that one President Obama is a former community organizer, and then he's followed by Donald Trump, a real estate developer. So this is not a coincidence. What does this tell us about real estate and, you know, our collective future?
0: Well, I, I really uh, want to credit uh, Mr. Trump for bringing real estate back into our thinking. I mean, you know, uh, there's a lot of digging that went around uh, after he got elected and found out what, how his father operated, how his son-in-law operated, how he operated. Uh, and, and really when you think about how real estate uh, is maximizing profits, not only in terms of uh, choice of where to invest and how to invest, but the kinds of tax breaks that they get and in Trump's case, of course, uh, the uh, ability to skirt uh, obligations by uh, falsifying information and things like that, you really realize that um, property is crucial to the larger story of revitalization and and fair and just property rules and regulations and uh, the exercise of those make a difference we haven't had that over time. Power has made a difference. Uh, certainly Trump had a lot of power and ins- and ability to, to work the system as he said himself, I only I can fix it, I know how it works. Uh, we need a, a, a better system. And uh, a story I haven't told to you today, but you saw in the book, it, it was really quite extraordinary in New Haven that the next step of that union organizing was to go ahead and get themselves elected as a majority of the city. Uh, Alders, which is their city council, and then began to use the zoning power to um, decide how the city is going to evolve in the future with new decisions on uh, what the terms are for new investment coming into the city. And I think that has not been well documented. I think it's got a lot of promise. And it is uh, something that other cities can look to in terms of uh, being aware that power connected to the zoning and planning process could make a difference.
1: Yeah, it, it does. It does. Uh, I don't think that it's lost on the audience that there are some actors that get to control uh, zoning, right, and and planning and. Um, to the benefit of some, perhaps not to the benefit of others. And so I leave it up to the readers to look more closely at the, at the book to, to identify those cases. But I'm curious what happens now, um, you know, af- uh, after Trump is we still have the COVID pandemic with us. What's going on with these cities now that um, COVID hit and, and after in their attempts to continue that equitable revitalization?
0: Well, it's a, I'm glad you asked the question because it always has been my intent to try to use the book as a little bit of a, a marker. Where did we get to coming into the COVID? Were, were, were there examples that we could build on once things had, had uh, returned to normal? And I think there was such a powerful argument across so many different places for equity standards and equity Decisions that there there is a hope that they could be built on, and I think they are doing so in places like Oakland in particular. But I'm also somewhat discouraged, and I shouldn't have been totally surprised as I was following this, and I do this by writing in my blog what's happening in different cities as we go forward. Example: In, in, in Oakland, has a plan for a very big. Uh, baseball stadium on the waterfront. And there's a very important community benefits agreement there. Also one in Pittsburgh that hasn't been fully realized yet. So following those things make a difference. But I've been surprised I wrote a a blog about Washington because they put out a statement about uh, the new budget putting a lot more money into the downtown to bring millennials back into the city as though that was the most important thing they could possibly be doing. And I thought, man, this is kind of strange. Uh, Why would they be so worried about that? And and it turns out that that is in Washington, at least a very big concern uh, that uh, downtown businesses are not doing as well. And in many ways, by making that a priority, we're reverting back to the uh, pre-Black Lives Matter by saying, yeah, our downtowns have to do well or we don't do well. Uh, Whereas at the same time, it's very clear that uh, the, one of the aftermaths of, of COVID was the removal of um, prohibitions on evictions and uh, constraints on landlords uh, with tenants who uh, were suffering financially uh, during the COVID period. And, and we're seeing a lot of problems around housing uh, in neighborhoods that uh, have uh, problems and even uh, rising Prices for for rentals in many places, whereas you're driving more people out as they don't have any protection. So I would say that we do have a mixed record here and that it's going to be very hard as it was for 50 years or so to overcome the bias of judging success by how well the city's doing downtown and not how well it's doing overall. And um, the fact that we do have national organizations that are committed to equity. We have local organizations that are committed to the equity. And planners uh, are aware of this and are beginning to act on it. We do have a chance of um, at least setting the ideal and whether um, the practical concerns mean you have to trade off in one way or another to get both. You have to attract investment in the first place to be able to share it. Um, maybe that does mean some kind of uh, compromise, but still, you should have both those things in mind, balancing each other out, equity as well as investment.
1: Professor Gillette, you, you mentioned a blog. You have a blog?
0: I do. It's on my website, uh, which can be found most easily by just Googling my name at Rutgers University.
1: Well, fabulous. I'll include that link on uh, the, the um podcast episode, the New Books Network podcast episode. I'm so grateful for you joining us today, but can you can you tell us what else is next for you besides the working on the blog? What else are you working on now?
0: <laughs> well, uh, I'm finishing up work on, on Encyclopedia of Greater Philadelphia book. We've been uh, moving it from a website version to three print volumes, and I'm getting back to an issue that was very much in my mind through much of my career is how do you define a region? And it actually goes back to one of your earlier questions. Philadelphia is at the heart of a very uh, wide and dispersed region. It's fragmented like most regions are, and yet Philadelphia's success uh, or failure affects the whole region. And uh, we're trying uh, by looking at the history of these different components of the region, its counties, its rivers, its uh, natural features and other uh, personal features to get a sense of where we've come to in the uh, first part of the 21st century uh, in a greater region uh, as it tries to uh, really uh, reach its, uh, uh, its uh, potential. And like most big city regions, uh, the city of Philadelphia is, is, makes, the, uh, makes or breaks the region as a whole. So that's where the city becomes central again to the larger experience of the of the whole area
1: and the region in in your definition is or is not constrained by state boundaries
0: oh not at all it includes uh southern new jersey where i am parts of northern delaware and a good part of uh, the area west of uh, the city of philadelphia
1: well, thank you so much for your time today, Professor Zet. I think we've learned a lot about a lot of wonderful things that I'll have to be listening to this conversation over and over again to, to you know, reflect on, on the rich discussion and your obviously very rich, well-researched book. Thank you for all your work.
0: Well, thank you. It's been fun talking to you.